OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. So welcome everybody to um, OPN's Ask an Angel. And today we're with Keith Gillard and very excited to have this discussion because we had a fantastic discussion a couple of weeks back. So this is kind of that preemptive, oh my God, we get to learn a lot more about how Keith invests and what's going on with Keith. So uh, Keith, why don't we just jump right into it and you start us off by giving us a bit of a background um, on yourself, where you've come from, what are the great things you've been up to and uh, kind of where you're moving to now because you've got some really exciting things in the hopper that we're excited to hear about. Yeah, thanks, Jeffrey. I really appreciate uh, getting invited to come on here and talk to you and, uh, and your viewers. Uh, so I've been a venture capitalist for 20 years now. Uh, before that, I was an entrepreneur, although I did begin my career in investment banking, but don't hold that against me. Within a couple of years, uh, I was making more from my side hustle than I was from the day job. So uh, I went off and did that full-time entrepreneur thing for the whole of the 1990s, um, uh, initially in, in music and, uh, um, and then in software um, founded a, a video game company, went out and raised venture capital for that, um, did another software company, and then a third uh, one, which is still around trading publicly, uh, doing uh, streaming audio and video um, and digital rights management. And that was the age of Napster. So it was a very uh, relevant topic. But out of that, I was headhunted by Mitsubishi Corporation to start up and run their Canadian venture capital activities. Uh, and after the dot-com collapse, suddenly software and media didn't seem like such a great place to invest. So I was refocused on what we later came to call clean tech, clean energy, environmental technologies. Um, I really didn't know much about that stuff at all. I was thrown into the deep end, but uh, fortunately it's stuff that I'm really interested in and very passionate about. Um, and and I'm, a, I'm a decent learner. So uh, I, I, I did that for five years. Um, and then became president of BASF Venture Capital America. BASF is the world's largest chemical company. Moved down to California, opened up their office in Silicon Valley and managed all of their direct and fund investments. Uh, one of which was Pangea Ventures Fund Two. Um, I became general partner of Pangea uh, a few years later, um, raising funds three and then fund four. Um, and, um, um, seeing the deployment of the uh, investments um, there, um, sitting on a few board of directors. Um, and that was, uh, that was really exciting. Um, we, we accomplished a lot and really built, built something with Pangea. But this year um, I had an idea for something new. Uh, I formed a new uh, firm called Upper Stage Ventures, uh, which is focused on a gap in the Canadian uh, VCPE landscape. Um, sort of a, a space, uh, no man's land in between uh, the two that is vastly underserviced and where there are hundreds and hundreds, uh, probably thousands of, of companies in need of, uh, of investment and, um, and managerial uh, help. Uh, so this is something I'm very excited about. Amazing. Uh, and I'm going to dig into all of those, but you have to share one thing about you that nobody will know. <laughs> well, I, I, I think you probably already hinted about it there. Uh, I began my, uh, what led me to venture capital 
was uh, getting hit on the radio uh, with my band. Uh, and then that led to people hiring me to produce their records, which led to me forming a record label and running a nightclub in downtown Vancouver. And yeah, so it's a, it's a, it's a path that doesn't make sense when you just hear the one thing, but actually all of these experiences led to the point where I was the guy that Mitsubishi Corporation uh, thought was the right one to um, start up and run their Canadian VC activities. It's pretty amazing. Kind of how all things just move along, right? And if you weren't open to the opportunity, it would have just blown right by you. But it sounds like you were just right in your element. You were like, yeah, you know what? I'm willing to try that. Well, you know, I learned to interpret a, a certain type of fear in a very positive way over the course of my career. And I, I know that something is the right move if it scares the pants off of me. <laughs> if, if it's really scary and I think, uh, can I really do this thing? I don't know. Um, and, and, and there's a, there's something about that feeling. Uh, I may not know it the moment I feel it, but, but now I say very quickly within days or perhaps even minutes now, when I, that feeling hits me, I'm like, Oh, Oh, this is that, uh, I have to do this thing. This thing is going to make me grow and is going to lead me on to greater success. It's going to drive challenge, right? Yeah, exactly. And did you find that that's kind of like that gut feeling where you feel like you're going to be sick because you can't sort it out and you're like, yeah, this is what I got to go for it. It's just, it feels wrong, but I know it's right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, I think that your, uh, your subconscious tries to drive you away from that. Your subconscious is, is scared of, of failure, uh, is scared of embarrassment, is, is scared of losing, I don't know, social status or, or whatever the things will come with that. Uh, but the entrepreneur uh, in me recognizes that only through risking those things and only through overcoming those things can I grow in my career and as a person. Well, it drives your... your um your sixth sense or whatever that uh, your gut tells you to go the opposite way from your comfort level. Your brain is always going to that comfort. Wait, wait, man, that's too, too difficult. Let's go over here and sit on the couch. You know, that's the, your mind is always trying to bring you to the safe zone. And uh, that's good that you caught that and went after it because it sounds like it's just driven this amazing uh, career that you've had. And it's led you up to today where you are. And I, and I think this new venture, and I'm going to get into that because uh, I'm excited to, to, learn more i'm sure the audience is as well but i wanted to kind of step back to the beginning which was um you mentioned in your first startup that you raised funds um and you went through that maybe you can give us a little bit of an idea of what that was like what was the feeling like this was back in the 90s when people were probably not even thinking about money and you were raising a million dollars which is probably worth a hundred million dollars today because of the way money's shifted so much in four, 30 years uh, so what was that feeling like what was what did you go through um, were, was it the same reception that you've had today in the environment or is it completely different, more open-minded now than it was then? Or how did, what were the, the challenges you had? Yeah, uh, there's certainly a lot more people wanting to hear the story and consider investment now than there was then. Um, but I think then there was also a kind of, uh, both on behalf of myself and in the market, there was a kind of naivete. Um, a lot of stuff got funded just because people didn't know any better and they wanted to see if it would, would work. 
I, I might compare it to the way that uh, um, record companies would work in the 60s. They're like, I don't know if this stuff is any good, but uh, the kids seem to like it. Let's uh, let's try, try this out. So a lot of really wild music got released in the 60s and 70s. And then that changed uh, later when it became very much more systematic in the 80s and especially into the 90s. And uh, you ended up with really the, the big sellers anyway are largely cookie cutter, uh, uh, very safe by the numbers kind of, uh, of things. I, I think um, we've seen a, um, a, 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 an analogous uh, evolution in, in venture. Uh, at the time, there were people out there, fewer of them, but still willing to take huge risks, flyers on things that they didn't really understand because the landscape was changing so quickly with uh, the internet uh, expanding, uh, the, the home, home computers, of course, those, those two things are related to each other um, and, uh, and standalone gaming systems because this was a video game company uh, uh, entering people's homes in a, in a, in a much faster way, uh, much, much more ubiquitous way than they ever had before. Um, there were just people that were like, well, this market is evolving very, very quickly. There's a lot of money being made. Uh, it's growing quickly. I don't understand it. I don't have the time to understand it. I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to take a risk. And we, we did end up in a situation where we had multiple suitors um, interested to provide the money to us. And uh, some of them are absolutely uh, uh, crazy stories. I, I got flown out to uh, New York by a... Um, uh, well, a very famous person um, who, uh, who, who, who now is, is deceased, sadly, but um, I should still probably not mention his name, flew me out to New York, put me up in one of his hotels, which was terrible. The worst New York hotel I've ever stayed in. Um, and, uh, and then threatened to throw me out onto the street um, if I didn't agree to his terms in our first face-to-face -face meeting. <laughs> wow. uh, fortunately, I'd brought a lawyer with me who, uh, uh, who, who this guy had to, had to he, it's, like, it's like almost like he had uh, uh, baseball mitts on his hands were so big, reached over to me, he says, Keith, I have a mansion just outside of town. You will not sleep on the street. <laughs> Like that's the only hotel in the world or something? You're like, wait a second. Oh, no, no. Well, I mean, I was, just, I was, you know, I was bootstrapping this company. Oh, okay. The guy knew it. I didn't have a whole lot of money at the time. So, uh, but, but fortunately I had been hooked up by a friend with, with this uh, uh, great uh, lawyer who, who came along and, and saved my, saved my ass. But uh, yeah, I, I had a lot of really interesting uh, experiences raising that money. Um, and, but nevertheless, was able to do it, hired a team of, I guess we had about 25 people on our team and put out the, put out our game, which still has a cult following, which is weird, but great. If we made something that was for a mid nineties, the game and people still want to play it. Wow. Terrific. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. I, I love the story too, because I, I'm sure today, you know, people hear these, still hear stories of crazy things that people go through with investors. Um, and I've heard a few. Uh, we've had a few happen to us. And uh, certainly not to that extent. Uh, but I can see that the um, back then it would have been a lot easier for 
investors to kind of stranglehold you into a position where they want to take you because there were fewer of them and the lack of knowledge in the space was very minimal. So you really didn't have a lot of uh, people to go to. There wasn't probably thousands of angels and VCs that you were knocking on doors with. Uh, so they had a bit probably more of a monopoly in the space. So you kind of had to work within the realms of what they gave you. So it's good that you found people that were more compliant in what you were looking for versus the bully tactic of uh, arm wrestling you through staying in my dump and then uh, <laughs> pulling it out from underneath you. Uh, but that's crazy. Offline, I need to know who this person is because he's famous. So I got to know who this is. But it uh, sounds like a pretty cool story. So so you raised this funds and you, and you deployed, you built a team in, in, in the gaming and the software industry. Even that industry has shifted dramatically. Like I've been playing games since the 90s and today, oh my God, I'm playing The Last of Us right now. I'm not sure if you're still uh, heavy into gaming, but it is sick compared to what I, I was playing with uh, uh, Loose Change Louie on my laptop or on my computer, just tapping buttons, right? Like this is night and day difference. So uh, how do you feel that the environment's changed and is it something that interests you from an investment standpoint? A gaming? Um, oh, well, the environment's changed a lot. I mean, uh, now I've got kids and uh, you know I see what they're into. And uh, for them, I would have to say it's much more about the uh, multiplayer online aspect of it, that social interaction aspect mm -hmm. of it, um, than, um, than it is about anything else. Uh, for, for them, even um, graphics are, but, but I have younger kids here, right? We're, we're, not, we're not talking... They're, that they're playing, uh, you know, Call of Duty or Grand Theft Audio or, or Auto or whatever. Sure. They're, they're, they're playing different kinds of games, but what they really want to do is be on there with people that they know um, and be interacting with friends in a different environment. We didn't really have that option uh, back in the day, um, but uh, certainly graphics continue to uh, accelerate much better graphics we're seeing uh, all the time. Uh, and, um, but I do think it's that multiplayer aspect that's the biggest difference as we've uh, got faster and faster bandwidth and we have decreased lag, it makes it possible to have those real-time uh, experiences, interactions with people. Uh, and that's really cool. It is. And, and I find that in the environment, there's uh, a couple of spaces that still don't get a lot of love and attention from. And I think it's because of the cost to manufacture it, but it's movies, game and gaming are really a tough space for investors to get into and sink their teeth into. Uh, yeah. Because the, the outcome is, I think, a lesser of um, a roadmap to say the success is there. So they tend to just now there's a couple of big companies that run all of this. And they don't really look at angel investors for that. We try to bring film in, we try to bring games in and crickets. They just couldn't get there, couldn't get behind it. And I'm not sure if it's because they don't see the future potential or they feel that it's just too large of a community to break into. Uh, I'm not sure what that is, but I think there's still a massive gap in that space for investing. Yeah, I, I think I, I have a theory as to what it is. I think that it is because people don't want to invest into things that they don't understand and they know that there are people out there that do understand it. Mm. And so if this company is still not funded, they ask the question, well, if you're so great, why hasn't firm X invested in you? 
Mm. Firm X knows way more about the space than we do, and Firm X isn't invested, so we probably shouldn't either. Well, to process. It's gone to that stage that it's very processed, I guess. So the risk is being minimized as much as they can everywhere. In pretty much every space, the vast majority of investors are followers. They are not leaders. Uh, I've gone on the road with many of my portfolio companies, helping them raise. And uh, so many times the meeting is, oh, we love what you're doing. That's great. We love the market. The CEO made a great impression. Yeah, when you sign a term sheet, let us know. We, we would like to consider participating. Mm. Okay, but term sheets are not hard to write. You know, <laughs> yep. just use the standard NVCA one. Come on, there yep. it is. It's, it's all packaged for you. Just plug in a few numbers and, and, uh, and then we'll have a talk. But uh, no, most people are not comfortable uh, leading. And I think it boils down to that issue that they don't feel they understand um, the market or the technology as well as someone else out there does. And they're hoping that that someone else out there is going to price the deal and leave room for them in mm -hmm. a way that they will agree with. Uh, and uh, well, there's enough of these groups um, that clearly that strategy does work. Um, mm -hmm. Deals get done. Syndication is hard. So I'm glad that there are uh, companies like this out there that can pick up the last one, two, five million or whatever that's left in a round. But uh, I do wish that uh, they were more willing to uh, take the lead. No, I agree with that. There's not a lot of them. And even in the discussions I have, very few angels or VCs tend to want to lead. Um, I think there's also uh, pressure on the business side as an angel VC um, to manage the team and effort that goes into doing that deep dive. So a lot of them will say, because a lot of investors are part-time and their core business is totally something different. They just want to give back. So when it gets to VC stage different, they're all in. Um, but I think you're trying to manage um, time, effort, and resource. And if you're mm -hmm. having 10 on the books that you're trying to manage, you're trying to make sure that that next company you're putting the right effort and time into, uh, you might be reinvesting going in two or three rounds uh, because you're all in in that group. So yeah. I think there is a really good need for um, groups that just become money uh, and only money. They're not looking to do anything else where, um, you know, these other VCs that are going to take the lead can just go and lean over and say, hey, we've done all the due diligence. This is a great investment. You should come in. Done. Here's my money. Um, I'm investing this money on behalf of the other people that don't know what's going on. But that's great because that's also needed. Uh, there's a lot of loopholes or a lot of areas that aren't tackled enough in this space. And that's one of them where, you don't have someone that's just open-ended to funding and supporting these other funds that are leading the way. Yeah. So I, I wholeheartedly appreciate that for sure. So now you kind of shifted through this and, and you, what I love about your whole background and everything you've done is that, uh, well, the whole thing is that you've just jumped through so many different variables in investing startups, entrepreneurship, to lending money, to being all of these facets, which means the learning is just exceptional. Uh, that you can provide back to a group or to a company. Um, and I love the fact that you were a GP in a fund. So you went from being a startup, raising funds to selling a company to then getting back into um, raising money to push the money out to those people that you were once. And now you're taking another version of it. So this is very exciting. Well, for me, it is. Uh, I'll make it really exciting. So the rest of the audience will be like, yes, it's exciting. I like this. Um, but I think that's pretty cool. So uh, maybe you can give us a little bit more on the GP side and what were the strategies? How did you look at companies? What was the thing that said, 
I want this one, this one, and this one. No, you're terrible. What got you interested in these companies and what changed from when you were uh, the one looking for money to now giving money out? How did you change that perspective? Okay. Well, I mean, when I was the one who was looking for the money, I was uh, on the startup side. I was convinced that I had uh, come up with, with my team, I don't mean to claim that I did it all myself, but that we had come up with something that was utterly fantastic and that people were going to love. And we were kind of right because people actually still love it. So that's great. Uh, um, so, but, but I went out there with this certainty and all the competition and all the market studies and everything like that. Ah, forget about that stuff. Look at this. Look what we've made. This is fantastic. And it was all just about that. It's completely in this tight, tight focus uh, of, of what it was that we were doing. Um, when you're running a fund, uh, it's, uh, it's different. You really have to be focused on the market. Um, and that's been a, a key thing for me. Uh, I started on the, on the corporate side with Mitsubishi initially and, and then BASF. So uh, we were very focused on what were the corporate interests. And those were driven by a combination of business unit interests with uh, all uh, sort of high level corporate long-term strategies. This meant that we were investing oftentimes in things that didn't yet have a significant market, but where there was anticipated there, that there would be one. For example, uh, Mitsubishi uh, had a high level of interest and still does have a high level of interest in fuel cells and hydrogen. Okay. So um, we did a lot of work in that space. Uh, no direct investments while I was there. But, uh, uh, but we did um, do a lot of work on that. We did make a fund investment uh, focused on that uh, space. Uh, I, I learned a lot about that, but that's a, a market that still uh, hasn't really taken off. It, it has its niche applications, but uh, as somebody said back, back in the day, in the early 2000s, fuel cells are the, are the, uh, are the energy of tomorrow. And they always will be. <laughs> oh, that's a good line. We've chatted with a few companies in that space. And you're right there. It, it seems to be maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow. But you're right. They're pushing it. It'll get there eventually, I suspect. But Well, it works. It, it, it works beautifully. Uh, uh, there's no question about that. And the cost uh, has come down precipitously. But you're not in a static system. Batteries have made progress every single year. And yes, it's an incremental pros progress. It's not uh, a hockey stick, but uh, that incremental progress all adds up. And when you're also looking at uh, renewable energy, especially I'm thinking of solar here, just plummeting in terms of cost, I combine that with uh, of this progress on the storage side uh, around cost, and fuel cells and storing hydrogen uh, starts to look less economically compelling. Mm -hmm. It has applications where you're not going into, where you're not competing against that sort of uh, uh, installed renewable energy uh, um, grid storage kind of play. 
Um, you know, it, it works great in cars, but we've made excellent progress on lithium ion rechargeable batteries for, for vehicles. And, you know, we all see electric vehicles on the road every day now. So uh, those markets that they were going after, harder and harder to, to get into. Where it does make sense is in um, CHP, combined heat and power. So this is for like hot water uh, the combined with electrical generation. Uh, in, um, in uh, especially in multifamily uh, installations, like uh, you could have uh, in, in, in the boiler room of a large apartment building or hospital or any kind of large building like that, you could have a, a fuel cell um, system at the heart of it uh, where it's capturing its own heat. The inefficiency is actually now giving you uh, additional efficiency rather than being lost and it's generating electricity. And uh, if it's doing it from uh, natural gas, it's already being piped into the building, then you have very little infrastructure uh, that needs to be done. It's just installation of equipment. Uh, um, so that, that, can, that can really work well. No, I love that. And then there's lots of, um, uh, a couple of other technologies that are coming out just even around say rigs and the way rigs run, taking the heat from there, pumping it back in, uh, to the cabin so they can run all night like its own uh, generator running uh, so it stores it up feeds it back through in the loop so that that way you don't have to burn gas or diesel or any other uh, inefficiencies in this so there are technologies that are layering off this which is really uh, cool um, I think like in that discussion though there there was one thing that you mentioned is that you come from one side to the other side and maybe when you went in trying to raise funds maybe you when you were first in your own company there was and I'm not sure what the, the right word would be, but there was, hey, man, look at us. We're building something cool. You should be investing us. So now you kind of flip the hat around and now you look at all the people that were you back then and you're looking at them saying, yeah, yeah, man, I was you once. I get it. Yes, you got the great company. But is there something that kind of shifted from that? You kind of look at it and say, you know what? I can help you because I was there for yeah. one. And two, you know, maybe you should approach it from this angle because I think it would be more approachable on my end to want to invest in you if you tinker it this way or change it this way are you do you look and focus more on that now and, and feel that the gravitation to help because you went through all of this yeah in in a big way um so um i did that with pangea of course we developed an investment thesis uh pangea is focused on advanced materials so chemistry material science physical science stuff um, that's their, their niche and uh, attracted a lot of, especially corporate money um, uh, for doing that. Uh, Penji is the world leader in that space. Um, uh, one of the things that I learned from that though, is that that kind of a technology driven investment mandate cuts across many, many markets. And uh, each one of us of course can have great strength in one or maybe two, uh, very few of those markets. We can't know them all. Okay, we're all learning all the time. That's fine. We, we continue to learn. Um, but that does put uh, a, a technology-focused mandate at a disadvantage versus someone who is focused on market. Because ultimately, I really believe the market is more important to the success or failure of these things than the technology. Uh, I know that companies do fail for technology reasons, but never one of the ones that I've invested in. <laughs> All the ones that I invested in, the technology worked. It was a market, 
And you might uh, argue that if it's the market, then really the fault lies with the management. If the management can't recognize or understand its own market, then they're not the right people to be leading that company. And was so, there a way for you to determine that though? Like, I'm guessing because you're giving them cash, you're working with them, you're seeing both sides of the equation from the investor to the entrepreneur. Are you guiding that ship? Or are you saying, hey, I got to be part of this board because these guys aren't getting it. And we're not going to lose this big investment. Is that things that you do or look at it that way? Or what's your attack or approach? Yeah, absolutely. Sitting on the board is, is very, very important. Um, uh, not just for informational purposes, but really to direct a company in the, the, in, in the right way to keep it capital efficient, to keep it focused on the right market opportunity. It can be very distracting uh, for a technology company uh, whose technology can address many interesting, compelling uh, stories. Let's, let's not use the word market here, because a lot of those stories that the, their technology could be the hero of, <laughs> those actually turn out to be small markets. And uh, they can take up huge amounts of management's time, uh, resources uh, from the team, et cetera, and not have any significant payoff. It certainly not lead to a great exit for their shareholders. Focusing on the market from the very beginning, I think is, is critically important. And it's one of the places where Canadian companies have been at a disadvantage. Canadian startup companies, at, at least on that sort of clean tech side of things where I've spent most of my career, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be very technology focused. They begin their origins uh, in R&D, uh, coming out of a university or maybe a spin out of somewhere, or it could even be in somebody's garage, but essentially they start off as science projects. And then they work with the NRC or whomever, and they try to find out, well, who could actually make money off of this really cool thing that we've developed? So uh, I, I, right after leaving uh, Pangea, I was working with uh, a friend's uh, company in the display material space. And this is a spin out that came out of UBC. And just like most of these technology uh, focused uh, companies, essentially their pitch boiled down to, look what we can do, isn't this cool? And yeah, it is, it is cool. But the real questions that you should be asking are, who cares and why? So I went in with those questions in mind and looked at the markets in a very different way, saw that they did have three uh, key technological advantages over the um, incumbent technology that they were competing against that could open up huge sections of the market that the incumbent technology could not address because it lacked in one, two, or all three of those areas. Um, with that, we were, and this is not just supposition, this is talking directly to the customers, partners, and suppliers in, the, in that whole supply chain, um, determined that we could take the incumbents $1 billion per year uh, market and turn it into a $7 billion per year market. This allowed us to reposition the company uh, in a beautiful way. Um, a great market-driven, data-driven story that saw it acquired within just a few months with a great transaction that, that, that did very well for the shareholders. Brilliant. 
It's awesome. Uh, and I, I like the fact that you had the um, foresight to see and analyze the tech to figure out, is this something that fits in the market and can it actually overcome what everybody else is doing? But then also, can this team actually carry this product forward? Because if the team can't do it, then who cares that they have this great tech? It's going to sit on the shelf and not go anywhere. And it's not going to be a great investment. Uh, so that kudos for seeing that. But I think the, the bigger one is that, and you touched on it, is that it wouldn't have been a good investment and the shareholders wouldn't have got that value out of it. And as a, as a VC or investor, your whole target is making sure that your companies that you invest in have that return because the more return you bring back to those angels or those VCs, the more they're going to continue investing, which means that they'll continue to help and support this ecosystem, which I think is the uh, always a tough thing because if you see the one in 10 win or one in 10 companies go on to be this unicorn, um, we tend to forget that there's actually six or seven other companies that are really do grow and get sold, but everybody just wants a unicorn, um, which blows my mind. It's that the eight or nine companies, I'd rather have eight or nine companies be successful and sell than have one unicorn. Because I think at the end of the day, you've created jobs, you've created value, the ecosystem grows. You, you, those nine, eight, eight companies that actually were successful in selling, they probably had spinoffs and you got to be involved in those. So you probably got to invest in six more companies. And the thing, that's what people don't think about. They're like, I just need the unicorns. Well, yeah, your unicorn's great, but think of all the other opportunities you created with those other companies that were able to grow and spin off and build and sell along the way, you actually are expanding your fleet and you're expanding the opportunities that you get to present and build up for your investors. And uh, uh, I think this kind of just jumps us into that next stage of where you're at now, um, which is this, uh, I'm not sure the right term you use, but it was gray area, but the area where the untouched investor side of things that you're now building your next fund in so I'd love for you to kind of share more about that because uh, I'm excited for this because we have a lot of companies that get to a certain stage. And I always call this the dead zone, which is either you got to sell like crazy to get out of this or you're going to be you're going to die on the vine here because there's nowhere else to go. So maybe you can kind of give us a, a, a bird's eye view into what you guys are focusing on here. Sure. Yeah, we, we were really inspired by uh, the 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 experience that I just described for you of identifying uh, a completely different way to look at the market and position that company. And we began to think that there are a lot of companies, and especially as we were in COVID lockdown there in the spring, there's a lot of Canadian companies, companies we don't even need to go through quarantine in order to go in diligence in person. Uh, there are a lot of companies out there that um, do not have a, a whole lot of support from their investors because they have investor fatigue or, or whatever. Um, they, uh, they may not have the ambition or the vision to realize the value of, and this is the most important part here, the fact that they, the only companies that are going to interest us are the stuff, the companies that have really great products uh, that can address really compelling international markets. So finding those companies that really seem to have something and yet they're not making the best use of it, which may be because of their management and maybe because their investors are not supporting them. We were originally thinking about maybe just buying one and running it ourselves and doing the same kind of thing that we had just done. But as I looked at like 200 BC companies looking for this, I found this pattern over and over and over again. And I began to think, 
you know, this is more than just a one shot. Uh, we could put together a fund for this. Now, since then, my thinking has evolved. I've been talking to a lot of people out there and a, a fund may not even be necessary because there is so much interest uh, from high net worth individuals and from family offices and even uh, some uh, financial institutions I've talked to that are very interested in financing special purpose vehicles to invest in uh, acquiring controlling positions in these companies in the, let's say five to $25 million revenue range. So not yet attracting the big PE firms and yet where they may not be venture appropriate uh, they may not even be venture friendly, and that's key part of doing the the controlling uh, uh, position. Um, you know, is I did one. Of, uh, is that focusing on companies that fit in with like an EBITDA of one and a half to two million? Is that kind of your target plus, uh, or you don't care about that? You just want to have a set revenue five million to twenty five million. I care less about the EBITDA because we're, we're going to go in there and, and probably we're going to change things. We are probably going to ramp up some spend yep. um, on these companies because that's a, a key part of this is refocusing that company on its best market opportunity. And I, I did a, a site visit with one company in the fintech space and uh, this company have a very strong position in their market here in Canada. They've like a 30% market share in what they do, which is great. They've got a great suite of products and the customers love it. But the CEO honestly said to me in the meeting, I'm not sure I have the ambition to go to the US market. Mm. I was just amazed. The US market's like 10 times the Canadian market. Why wouldn't you go there? Oh, it's going to cost some more money. Well, yeah, but <laughs> you've got a great product. Your customers love it. You know, yeah. you should be, maybe you're only going to take 10% of the market there, but 10% of the market there is still three times bigger than the, the market you're accessing here. Come on, you can quadruple your top line. Yeah. Uh, even if you don't have any growth in Canada, you should go for it. This is... Yeah. Money well spent, but uh, yeah, I encounter that kind of attitude a lot from founders who really just want to run a, a lifestyle business and don't want to grow something that's going to impact the world uh, and improve um, quality of life for everybody or, uh, or, or just improve things within the industry that they address. Um, you know, I, would, I want to invest in companies that do both of those things. Agreed. No, that's, that's fantastic. And, and it kind of fits into the, uh, the model where a little bit, a little bit not, it can further upstream. But one of the areas that we always found was where I called the dead zone was that anywhere between um, a company that was worth 8 million and 15 million have a very tough time finding financing because the banks kind of will touch them, but they will do it if they get some input from a VC or an angel to come in and match funds, um, but depending on how well they're doing. But the other side is the VCs are like, well, you're too far down. You're not hitting the revenue numbers we need. We want to make sure that you're hitting, you know, four or five million, maybe more. So there's kind of this spot where uh, they go out to market and they're struggling to find cash. And then as soon as they get to that next layer, when you're in that value of 15 and up, then all of a sudden the money starts to flow in. There's more VCs wanting to get in there. The risk has been reduced significantly. You've got a good trajectory. So you really got to work your way through that. And angels don't invest in companies over 10 million because the returns aren't really there for them. 
uh, even though they are technically, um, because they're going to get it to 100 or 200 million, the angels, their money is worth more value in that range of, you know, 1 million to 10 million. So there is a gap and it, it sounds like you're fitting in that gap and maybe a little bit further ahead too. But I think that that's honestly, it's fantastic. I'm going to have a million companies to send you and be like, Hey, here's all of our investments. Uh, can you take them to the next level? Um, because before they get to that series, A, they're going to need that uh, big push, right. To get them in there. So I, I think there's a huge need for that. Terrific. I want to look at every one of those companies. Done. So, all right, we're done here. This is good. I got to have some homework to do, but yeah, that's crazy. Um, I love it. So, so you guys are now kicking this off. Where is it working from? How does it work? Is there a way to apply? Uh, what do you got to do? Well, uh, there's a kind of stealth mode website, but you can contact us through that. It's upperstage.ventures. Um, you can also find me on, on LinkedIn or follow me on Twitter. Um, all of these things are, are, are easy to do. But yeah, uh, we, we are active in the Vancouver and Toronto areas. We've got uh, team members in both of those places. And we are talking to uh, some people about um, opening up a Montreal office as well. Um, we are um, we are getting close to closing transactions in both Vancouver and Toronto right now. Uh, we are probably not going to get those done by the end of the year, but I would expect in early quarter one, uh, we'll be making an announcement and uh, our, our website will start to look like something less stealthy as, as soon as we have a, a portfolio to start promoting. Uh, we'll be doing that. Oh, that's brilliant. And uh, so the types of companies that you're going to focus on, just so that that shapes my mind and the audience mind about who they're going to come after, what, uh, what are you looking for? Well, we think there's great opportunities uh, in supply chain. Uh, so um, uh, that can include physical stuff like manufacturing, food and agriculture, uh, logistics, uh, etc. But also we're looking at a lot of opportunities where software can really improve things in, in supply chain. Uh, so uh, that, that, that can be things, again, in, in logistics, it can be things like blockchain, uh, it, can be, um, it, it can be things for remote working, uh, for uh, the, the fintech, there's a wide, wide range of things there. We just see that the, uh, the pandemic has exposed great weaknesses in supply chain that can be addressed either through technology or just through better business practice. And Canada's got a lot of great technology here. Uh, Canada also is well-trusted in the rest of the world. And between uh, my network and the network of the rest of my team, we are well-positioned to take these companies out to the big markets, either south of the border or overseas in either direction. Perfect. I'm going to get you on auto dial. You don't know how excited I am right now. This is huge. Um, yeah, all the companies that we're investing in or are going to invest in, I think there's a huge potential for... Uh, layers on right we have other um, VCs and angel groups that we work with so that um, as we get that work with those companies to kind of get to that next stage there's always who can we start to get bring them in focus in and help them get to a better level and, and work that business model so uh, very exciting what you guys are doing so that's Thank upstage you. dot ventures I'm a upper stage upper stage I even wrote that down I don't know why I just said upstage that's crazy but upper stage dot ventures I love it um, all right, so now we're going to move quickly into our rapid fire questions because I think if I don't, you and I might be talking for another three hours and uh, uh, it'll be great, but that'll be a long watch. So uh, let's, uh, we'll jump right into these questions. All right. Uh, what's your favorite part of investing? 
the people. I, the, my favorite part of investing is the people. I just love the fascinating and sometimes crazy people that you meet. I like it. I second that. Uh, how many companies do you invest in per year? Well, we're just getting started, but we expect Upper Stage is going to be doing about four deals per year. Let's say three to six. Three to six. Okay, that's good. That increases our odds. I like that. All right. Any, uh, we talked about the verticals, but quickly, but uh, the verticals you want to focus on, maybe two or three of them that you can really shape in for everybody. So our investment mandate, our thesis is focused around supply chain. So uh, let's break that down into uh, manufacturing, uh, food and agriculture, and um, software for supply chain. Perfect. Uh, in your due diligence, is there any strict requirements that you need to see in order to move forward with a company? In due diligence, I would say my strictest requirement and where I have a special focus is on the team and the culture. I want to see that these are people that work well together. I want to understand the weaknesses that they do have so that we can augment uh, those deals, complement any weaknesses that are there. So a focus, a deep dive on culture is something that I make a high priority every single time. I like that. Uh, timeline for an investment? A timeline for investing from uh, first meeting to closing, I, I think should be in the four to six month range where it gives us a couple of months to do some diligence to get to a point where we agree on terms and then a couple of months to close. Okay. Do you have a, um, a minimum maximum that you look to invest? We do not have a set minimum or maximum, but given that we are acquiring controlling positions in companies with five to 25 million in revenue, it does suggest a range. If we were to buy somewhere between 51 and 100% of the shares in these companies, uh, you would expect that the smallest deal we would do would be somewhere in the 5 million range and the largest deal we would do might be somewhere in the 50 million range at this point. Okay. Love it. Getting more excited every time. This is good. I'm going to keep asking questions. Uh, outside of DD material, what other factors do you look at? You, you mentioned the team, but is there other things that you really want to make sure are a big home run for you guys um, and how are you going to help them? The big factor we look at besides the team is the one I spoke about earlier, and that is market. Uh, I want to understand the big international market opportunity of the company. And unfortunately, the company itself may not understand that properly, usually doesn't. So this is some place where we have to do a lot of work. And uh, fortunately, we have a great team, people that really understand the kinds of markets we're addressing. And we have a great network of people that we can just pick up the phone uh, or get on a Zoom call with and get a, a good understanding of where a company's products could make a bigger impact than where they currently are focused. I like that. That's great. Uh, obviously, you like to lead rounds because you're going in as a pole position into the company, uh, which is fantastic. Uh, do you have preferred terms that you look for? 
we do like to we do like to lead. We don't have a problem with syndicating a deal, and in fact, we're we're considering that with one of the deals we're working on right now. We do have some really interesting value-added investors that want to take minority positions, and that could allow us to play for a, a bit bigger company, um, and and still have the the kind of controlling stake that we would prefer to have. Special terms. Uh, our terms, I think, are are pretty standard with with within private equity and venture capital. Uh, if we are buying out only part of somebody's position, uh, so that they can continue to have upside, we would put uh, any additional capital into the company in a preferred share structure to give ourselves the um, extra protections or rights that, that we may need. When I structure terms, I really try to make it a win-win uh, between ourselves and the management and, and any future management that we need to recruit and retrain, sorry, retain in the company. Uh, th that's critically important that the teams feel very motivated. Um, working on a company right now where there was no uh, ESOP, no employee stock option plan, uh, the uh, team had had nothing along those lines. And uh, when I brought up the, the, the topic that this is something we would be putting in place, uh, there was, uh, depending on the person you talk to, a lot of excitement or, or a lot of confusion. And, and, and I suspect a lot of people, when they realized that this is something that does happen commonly, there was um, maybe some, some bad feelings that they hadn't been treated this way by the previous owners of their company. Yeah, it could put a bad taste in why didn't we get this? And uh, I agree. Yep. Well, you know what? Onwards and upwards. It's the way to make the business stronger and, and build uh, your employees in to be stronger and, and more adaptable inside the company, right? Yeah. Um, do you take, uh, do you guys do follow on investments? You have to consider to do follow-on investments. If you don't do follow-on investments in this industry, you have a target, not just on your back, but just painted over your entire self. You're, you're going to lose every cent if, if you are not willing to do follow-on investments. Because sooner or later, every company gets into a spot of trouble and there's a good chance that they will need more capital when they're in that troubled time and somebody will come along and see the weakness and, uh, and they're only doing their own fiduciary duty because they got LPs that they're reporting to. They got to make the most of, for their LPs money. It doesn't make them evil. It's just the way the game is played and, and they got to do the best they can to make money for their people. So they're going to come in, see that there's weakness and they're going to recap the company. They're going to, you know, anybody who doesn't participate is washed out to common, sometimes crammed down 10 preferred shares, become one common share. I have done that to people. I've had that done to me. Um, it, 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 it's not fun either way, uh, honestly, uh, but it's, uh, it saves companies. Yep. It gets them through the, these, these troubled times. Uh, that they're they're in and uh, and through hopefully to great exits, but if you don't do your follow-on investment, you will be the fund that gets crammed down, uh, and then you're going to return zero dollars to your LPs. You have to plan to do follow-ons, and you can't always look for that uh, next shiny penny without supporting the existing. And you know it, there was a lot said when ben, the pandemic started that a lot of funds slowed down and said, hey, you know what, I got to look at what I've got going on right now. 
Um, I don't want to lose all my investments. So we're not going to be investing at the moment. And, um, you know, it's hard to fathom or understand that, but it, it is, it makes a big difference. Uh, you, you've got to be able to protect what you, what you have and, and help them grow too. Right. Yes. Uh, all right. Last, uh, last question. Do you take board seats? I'm going to guess. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I think taking a board seat is, uh, is, is very important if you're making a major investment. And in the case of upper stage ventures, we are taking majority investment positions. So not only do we take a board seat, but also we'll be critically uh, involved with finding independent uh, board members to really add value and uh, steer that company in the right direction. I love if, it. If you can't have a board seat, uh, you, uh, but, but it's something that you want, you can be almost as influential as a board observer. There's no rule that says a board observer must be a silent observer. A board observer can argue just as strongly for a position um, as, a, uh, as a board member and can uh, help to direct a company. So um, I have uh, had observer positions uh, in the past uh, where I know I was more influential than most of the directors. I believe that, I love it. Um, I actually, on a side note, um, you know, I'm looking for a board, someone to come in on a board seat for a FinTech company. So I'm just throwing that out there right now. So right. Uh, if you have anybody in mind, please let me know. Um, on a, all right, I love it. We'll carry that onto the side conversation. It sounds like we might have to have a few of them. But um, all right, so there's, uh, there's really two more questions I have. I learned in my um, listening to one of the companies we were working with um, to be more on the personal side, because I always get excited about the business side. I really got to dive more into this personal side of things to make it more humanized. So in the last few uh, interviews, I've uh, really dived into it. I actually find it, um, well, it's different for me, so it's more fun to do it, I guess, after I feel less anxiety about it. I'm like, okay, it's okay. These questions weren't that hard. Um, but uh, before I ask those two questions, there's one last one. And this question is re we're more referring, referring to uh, some companies that you've worked with in the past, that you've got this heartfelt story, and you shared one about your investing, which I thought was great. So kind of like that, where you couldn't believe that this happened, uh, but this company pulled a cat out of the bag, they were successful or they weren't successful and they failed, but there was a lot of learning. Just looking for some story that comes to mind that just blew your mind that you thought, wow, this is incredible or this was terrible and became incredible um, for a founder or for a company. Just love to hear any stories that you have that are kind of more strings, heart pulled string, you know, that old saying, if there is any that pop in mind. Okay, um, said hard strings. <laughs> Um, one of, uh, uh, one of uh, my companies uh, is a company called Vesteron, um, uh, based in um, Kalamazoo, Michigan, and Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. And they, uh, they have an amazing suite of products that are uh, bio-derived uh, pesticides that are very effective at killing insects that attack crops, but they have no measurable effects, no, no toxic effects against any non-target non organism. So humans, mammals, birds, fish, even bees, not affected. 
great. But caterpillars and the beetles that attack the crops, great. Um, wonderful technology, wonderful team. Um, really a uh, lovely CEO who, who couldn't raise money <laughs> at all. And I went on the road with him uh, to raise money, um, uh, which was a, a great experience. He, like me, also a musician. So we had a lot of things to, to talk about personally. Uh, really a lovely, gentle guy, um, a, a real inspiring leader who brings out the best in his people but not a great aggressive deal maker. So he brought me out to, to help uh, on that side of things. Well, one Sunday morning, uh, I got a, an unexpected phone call and uh, John had died in his sleep. Oh. Um, he, was only, uh, uh, he was only 69. Uh, um, it was, um, there was no real sign that this would happen. And so I, uh, I rushed out on an airplane uh, to Kalamazoo. Um, uh, the only time I've had to drive through lake effect snow driving in from Chicago. Oh my gosh, that's really terrifying. Um, and I got there and I found a company in absolute mourning. Uh, I found people openly crying out in the public areas of the building, um, not just in the bathroom or in, in their cubicle or whatever. Uh, but we managed to bring that company through that. We didn't lose a single employee and we brought on board absolute killer of a CEO, Anna Rath. She is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And she took that company and like the stories I told earlier, she took a technology oriented R&D uh, company, although it was commercial with a few products, still essentially an R&D company. And she transformed it into uh, a commercial company that is uh, changing the game in commercial pesticides altogether. Uh, they've won so many awards now under her leadership. They have, uh, uh, they've managed to get um, uh, regulatory recognition of new molecules, these bio-derived molecules, uh, for the first time a novel class of pesticide has been awarded this for, uh, well, since the 1990s. It, it, it's a very rare and, and valuable thing. Um, but she was able to take what this wonderful gentle giant of a man was able to, to, to bring out, inspire out of his amazing R&D people. And she was able to, to take, take all of that and uh, take it not just to the next level, but take it worldwide to, it's gonna transform the industry. Um, and so that's really what I love to see is great people that can um, take, this, take these technologies to markets that really need them. And uh, I think Vesteron is an excellent example of that. Well, that was, uh, you really did hit the heartstrings on that one, but uh, that was a, a great transformation. I think that uh, that story, uh, well, I'm gonna say that's the best story we've had so far because uh, it really did 
really did come full circle, right? You didn't expect that. And then you didn't expect the outcome. And it's fantastic. You guys were able to jump in there and help out and um, uh, help that company get back on its feet and move through it. So uh, kudos, amazing story. Um, yeah, I love it. That was great. Uh, that was more of the heartfelt one. So, um, all right. So now we're going to go into the personal question ones because I'm stuck on, I don't know what to say other than it was a great story. So, um, uh, but on the, on the personal side question. So question one, what's your favorite sports team? Oh my God. Uh, right now, the sports event that I'm watching, my uh, sports team would have to be the U S Democrats. <laughs> that's the sports event I'm watching right now but by the time you're going to broadcast that that joke may not land uh, yesterday was the American election for those of you who don't understand what I'm referring to um, uh, outside of that I'm afraid I'm not really a sports guy you want to ask me about bands uh, uh, um, uh, yeah that kind of thing I'll, all right I'll your favorite band what's your favorite band then well um, I am a, uh, a, a huge fan of New Order yeah, um, uh, right from Joy Division, from their rock and punk days through to their dance music uh, uh, transformation and the most recent stuff, I'm, I'm a big fan. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, I can't say I'm a huge fan, but I'm a fan. Um, okay. But uh, maybe now I'm going to have to pull that out again. I'm going to say pull the album out, but I don't really have an album player, so I would say I'll pull it oh, out fine. online. Yeah, I don't oh, have a vinyl, but I'm sure my buddy does. But that's pretty cool. Um, all right. Favorite movie? Favorite movie. Oh, so there's a, um, uh, this is a really weird, obscure one, um, an Iranian film uh, that's called um, Children of God or Children of Heaven. I think there might be two translations, but um, it's just absolutely a beautiful film uh, about um, a, a, a brother and sister who have to share a single pair of shoes um, and uh, and it's, it's funny, but very touching and gives you uh, a, a real eye-opening look of what life was like for poor people in Tehran in the 1990s. It's a beautiful film. It's got a bit of a cult following to it. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, it won a bunch of awards. Uh, yeah. it's, it's a remarkable film. Yeah, I'm familiar with the film. I'm, I'm a big fan. So what character would you play in that film? Oh, well, I... I'd, I'd, I'd like to be the little boy, but uh, yeah, I don't think I could get that role anymore. I guess I have to play the dad. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. No, it's uh, because you've gone with a different style of movie. Most uh, come up with more famous movies and then you pick the character that would fit. You're like, what represents you the best in that film? So a little bit tougher in that. Well, one. yeah. So, I mean, if it was the Marvel universe. Uh, my, my daughter says that I'm, I'm like the Captain, Captain America. So done. I like that one. Captain America done. Well, I think that uh, Keith it was fantastic chatting with you. Um, we've kind of uh, gone over our time, but man, it was exciting. I think there was a, a ton of learning. Uh, very excited about all the different things that you've done and what you've accomplished and what you're doing next. Uh, I think there's a lot of learning here and hopefully the audience will uh, see the same thing when they, uh, when they get to see it and hear it. Uh, but I appreciate all of your time. And I uh, want to thank you again. But one last thing that we do is we want to give you the last word. So if there's anything you want to share with uh, investors or entrepreneurs, any words of advice, uh, I'm sure they'd love to hear it. So I leave you with the last word. And thank you again okay. for joining us. Well, that's great, Jeffrey. Thanks very much. 
the last thing I'd fit in there is one that we, we didn't get to. Uh, one of my other hats is as chairman of the Foresight Clean Tech Accelerator Center. It's Canada's largest clean tech exclusively focused accelerator. And we just celebrated our 500th client company to go through our programs. Um, we've got a great suite of programs and we are working with companies all across Canada, increasingly uh, working with uh, companies going further east into Canada. Um, and we, uh, in addition to things like mentorship and that, we offer these uh, challenge programs, which are like mini X prizes that are industry sponsored uh, um, efforts to solve a particular commercial need. We look to startup companies to try to provide the best solution to an existing industrial pain point. And those companies that win not only get the prize, but they get a great customer as well. That's brilliant. Well, that's a good way to end it. And I'm glad you were able to touch on that because you're right, we didn't get a, a moment to uh, speak to that. Uh, but again, huge fan of all the great things you've done in the ecosystem. Uh, keep up the great work. And uh, I look forward to chatting with you more about all this. But Keith, it's been fantastic. And uh, I take lots of notes. So it doesn't look like I'm uh, reading a novel underneath here, but a uh, big fan. And uh, thanks again for taking the time. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Jeffrey. You bet. Have an awesome day. Cheers. Well, that was incredible. Uh, huge, man. Lots of great stuff. Keith's done a lot of great things in his day, coming from a musician to investor to raising money. Uh, absolutely incredible. So uh, there was a lot of things he touched on, but I think the main one that he really did want to emphasize, which was uh, pretty incredible, was, you know what? Focus on the team. Focus on the execution and then the market making sure that that company fits in the right market. That makes a big difference on where that company is going to go. Uh, love the fact that they're creating in that, that one area that's not being the dead zone of investing, uh, that they're coming into that. It's fantastic. I think that's going to make a big difference um, in, uh, in the ecosystem for investing. And, uh, you know, at the team and the culture, I think really hit home for me. I really enjoyed uh, hearing that they put a lot of emphasis on that. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, learning about... Um, uh, the likes and that uh, he plays music and a uh, big fan of um, some uh, culture films. That's also pretty cool. So uh, yeah, what more can I say other than it was a great discussion and I'm looking over my notes, trying to think of what other cool things I can say, but uh, being from clean tech and uh, now working at upper stage ventures, I think they've done some great things. So uh, Keith, thanks again. You did a fantastic job and uh, thank you everybody for joining in. Have a great week.